Good morning. How are y'all doing? My name is Brad. I uh, have the privilege of serving here at Crossroads as one of the pastors um, up until uh, about two months from now when I get a little boot out of here. Um, I, yes, indeed, am a part, one part of uh, the lesser part of the, of the church planting partnership duo that will be heading out this fall. Um, this, this summer, if you've been around, you know that we've been walking through these these pictures of the gospel, these places all over Scripture that point us to the work of Jesus Christ, that point us to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's been fun. I, I'm sure that if you've, if you've been here, you've enjoyed this because, you know, oftentimes what happens in our tendency is when we pick a passage over here and we pick a passage over here and we pick a passage over here, the tendency can be almost that we, we, we kind of go down this road of this is everything we need to do because it's the kind of a passage that stands alone. But, but hopefully for you, as you've been here over the course of the summer, you realize that none of these passages stand alone. It's all part of this bigger picture of this gospel story that God is revealing to his people for us today. And so uh, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at another picture, and, uh, and, and one that, uh, for me, has been formative. Uh, in, my, in my walk with Jesus, it, it was a time for me to really have to come to grips with some of these truths about 10 years ago. And so um, it's, it's something, it's a passage that really speaks to the heart of, of the gospel and, uh, and, 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 and his goodness for us, I guess. So uh, if you're able, would love for you to stand and uh, read. Turn to, turn to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. Give you a little bit of background on this passage. Uh, the Israelites, the people of Israel, God's chosen people have been in slavery for generations. They uh, have been under Pharaoh's rule and have been their slaves. What we see here is God's redeeming work happening right in front of our faces. That right before this passage, what we have here is a celebration. God has led his people through the Red Sea. And as they turn back, they watch the walls of water crumble down on the pursuing Egyptian army that comes after them. And so what sparks in them this celebratory worship that happens. And they're sitting at the banks of the, of the Red Sea there, and they've said, look at what God's done for us. And then we come to chapter, to chapter 15, verse 22. Let me read for us. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why it's, that place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. I'm going to stop here for a second. It's important for us to understand uh, that this word... For piece of wood is actually the word in Hebrew, etz. Kind of E-T-Z is how you, would, how you would spell it phonetically, I guess. Etz. And really, at the root of it is actually the word tree. So what I'd like to do is actually read and say that God, the Lord showed him a tree. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, 
If you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where, they were, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. This is God's word. You can be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, like I said, this passage begins on the banks of the Red Sea. The Israelites are celebrating. They're joyful. Their enemy has just been defeated. And going back even further than the Israelites being, in, being enslaved in Egypt, God makes a promise to Abraham long ago, forefather of the Israelite, the Israelite people, and says, I will give you a place. I will give you a place where you as a people will grow and you will be my people. It's called the promised land. And so you can imagine that if, as the Israelites are wash, walking, washing, excuse me, walking through the Red Sea, I mean, they're in wonder, first of all, at what's happening around them. But when they come to the other side and they see the defeat of the Egyptian army, they know what's coming. We're going to the promised land. This, this was the last step before we got there. And now we're going on to the promised land. Can you imagine how that was filling their hearts? But that isn't what happened. We read here that Moses leads the people three days into the wilderness. In other translations, it actually says that Moses made the people set out. I can only imagine that they were just like, can we just hang on to this for a little bit longer? This is just so good. He makes them go. And yes, really, while it is Moses who is attributed to that, what we really see is that it is God who leads his people three days into the wilderness. And we say that it is God who leads them into the wilderness because if you understand this story, you know that when Israel began this journey out of Egypt, what does God do? He makes his presence known to them and his leading to them through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire so that they would always know that he is present with them and that they would always know that he is the one who's leading them. And so yes, while it's Moses who's leading them on the ground, it is truly God who is leading them. All they needed to do was lift their eyes and they would see that. So three days, they enter the wilderness and they walk for three days. This is three days without any sign of water. Three days without any spigot that they could go and fill up their canteens or anything like that. You know, for those of you who just got back from the trip to Turkey, Greece, and Rome, you know, Rod will say, hey, we're going to fill up our, our camel packs a few times here. None of that. They left with what they had, and that was it. I can't go in afternoon without getting a headache if I don't drink enough water, right? Imagine three days of this. I mean, these people after th on the third day have got to be thinking, what is going on here? We're going to die. So you imagine that if you're in the middle of this pack, of this line of people, this massive group of people, and all of a sudden up in front of you, you're like, there's commotion happening. What's going on over there? All of a sudden you start to see these people, they're dropping their bags, and all of a sudden the dust starts to fly up because people are starting to run. Water! 
Can you believe that? I mean, we, we don't understand that because we're not, we're not walking in the desert like that. But after three days, they're going to cry out as much as they want to. They don't care, right? They're getting that water. And so all of a sudden you imagine that those bags get dropped. They don't even care. They pick up their robes and they start going. They're getting that water. Relief is finally in front of them. God has finally shown us how he's going to take care of us. But just then, just as quickly as the celebration begins, as the people bring their cupped hands to their mouth and they take in the first initial parts of that water, they spit it out. It's bitter. It's sour. No. No, it's more than sour. It's diseased. We can't drink this water. What's going to happen? What do we do now? We've all encountered this type of disappointment, haven't we? We've all encountered these disappointments where the thing that we thirst for or hunger for or think we need the most is set there right in front of us and yet we can't touch it. Yet it does not satisfy what we think we need. I can only imagine that in that moment those people begin to ask, what are you doing, God? In fact, in verse 24, it states that the people begin to grumble and murmur. It's serious. But their response is even more serious. Because in that moment for the people of God, God's promise to deliver them and bring them into their own land, for them, sits on the knife edge. Will it fall off? Or will it stay upon it? But God's promises aren't on a knife edge. They're as sure as ever. Because remember, God is the one who leads them to Mara. He has great intention for leading them to here, as we'll soon find out. But as we see the people grumbling, anxiety-ridden, feeling betrayed, we see Moses, we see Moses, priesting on their behalf. And God's response, God's response is compassion. It's grace and mercy. He shows Moses a tree. And the tree placed in the water transforms it to a sweetened, drinkable state. So you see, God wants life for his people. He has not brought them out into the desert to leave them to die. He hasn't betrayed them. He hasn't left them to their own devices. He makes a way. And God does more than just provide one spring. We see in verse 27 later on that God actually leads them to a place called Elam where there are 12 springs. Not only 12 springs, but 70 palm trees. At Elam, God's people experience that even in the desert, the Lord will take care of them and he will do so abundantly. But if you're like me, you might ask the question, why not bring them to Elam right away? If his intention was to bring them to water, why not bring them to Elam? Well, we must remember that God's purpose for bringing his people out in the desert in the first place is that he longs to be reunited with his people in the same kind of way that a husband is united to his bride. 
We're reminded in Isaiah 62 how the Lord rejoices over his people as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. In Deuteronomy 8, we see how God brought them into the desert that he might humble them in order that they might be faithful, a faithful bride to him. You see, God wants a partner in this marriage. He wants a partner who will trust him and who will receive his love as he desires to offer it to them. But the stop at Mara is important for another reason as well, isn't it? Because when still slaves in Egypt, God hears the cries of his people and he responds. He sends Moses as an advocate and a leader. He sends Moses as his mouthpiece to his people to show them that God has not forgotten him, but that he is here to redeem them. And he sends Moses to the people and he tells them something that is important for us to see in, verse, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18. You can turn there if you want to, but I'd like to read it to you here. God says to Moses at the place of the burning bush, he says, excuse me, lost my place here. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. God wants them to take a three-day journey in order to offer sacrifices, to worship them. Before every plague we see that God inflicts upon the people of Egypt, he sends Moses to say, Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can go into the wilderness and worship me. And so that we, we read that God, by way of Moses, made the people leave the Red Sea. He makes them go, and he makes them travel three days into the wilderness, and there, thirsty and fearing death, they come to Marah. It's their first point of testing in the wilderness. We'll see more of them if you read on in Exodus. But this is the first. And the question is, will the people of God who celebrated with tambourines and great joy just three days before at the Red Sea continue to look to God as their helper and their rescuer? But encountering Mara, the people grumble. This isn't just complaining or showing disapproval of the situation. There are plenty of opportunities for us to disapprove of certain situations that we're a part of. But the next step is how we will respond to it. How will we live with that situation? No, no, no. The Hebrew word here that is used for the word grumbling is actually the word loon. And it's used elsewhere to signify this idea of something that is lodged deeply within somebody. The picture that we have here is that something that has been so deeply festering inside of the people of Israel is actually starting to come out of them. They can't control it any longer. This, these waters of Mara, the disappointment that they've experienced, have unleashed something that have been rooted deep within their hearts and their souls. You see, the people are festering. They are sitting in their own bitterness. 
And it leads to, the, to them to approach God in disbelief and doubt. When they are grumbling, they say, we no longer believe. And so what we have here is that, yes, Pharaoh lets the people go. Yes, they traveled through the wilderness for three days. But now, as in the place, in this place, at Mara, the sounds rising to heaven aren't that of worship and awe. It's the sound of rebellion and the sight of clenched fists. You see, after generations and generations of slavery, Israel had been completely and utterly polluted. They're full of Egypt. We read later on in the Exodus account and other passages how the people of Israel actually began to worship the gods of Egypt. That in other passages when it talks about how they come up to the need for food or the need for sustenance, they say, oh, it would be much better for us to go back to Egypt. That's where we got to have food with no cost to us. They're polluted. They weren't just held captive, but they were enticed by what they experienced there. And not only that, at the very beginning of the Exodus account, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 14, it actually says that when Israel entered into Egypt and they became slaves, that the Egyptian people made their lives bitter. It's been rooted in them since the beginning. Israel needed to be healed of their distrust, her Egypt-loving ways, and also the bitterness that festered within them. But God, love those two words, right? God loves his people. And his promise to Israel wasn't just to take them out of slavery and out of Egypt to provide them relief. Relief is simply a band-aid. God's promise is deeper than that, folks. His promise is to completely restore them by delivering them from all of the ways that they had been consumed in Egypt. You see, bitter life experiences have a really unique way of causing the things that are really in our hearts to come out in our, into the open, right? And true restoration can only begin to take place if we're brought face to face with the conditions of our hearts no matter how difficult it might be for us to actually face that. And so in that place at Mara, God's people experience that the bitter waters of Mara actually are their hearts. It's who they are. It's what they've become. We're immediately given a picture of contrast here where while people cry out against God, Moses cries out to God. You see, let's not miss this. In this short statement of verse 25, we see this contrast between entitlement and dependency. We see Moses in dependent need for God crying out for relief. And we see the Israelites operating in entitlement. Now you might say, but hold on here. They just spent three days in the wilderness with no water. You tell me how you're going to respond. I'll be honest. I'd probably respond like them. But the difference that we have to see here is that the Israelites, who had just seen God do an incredible work at the Red Sea, is saying, no, no. 
This is how we want to have it happen. This is how we want to be rescued. Compared to what Moses is saying, God, how do you want to do this? How are you going to do this? We believe that. Show us. See the difference? And the beautiful thing is that God's response is to show his people that he hasn't brought them into the wilderness to continue on as slaves. That's no longer who they are. He wishes for them to be restored and made new as the covenant people he had formed from the very beginning. And he, the healer, Jehovah Rapha, he is going to be the one to do it. And we see in showing Moses the tree the means by which he will do it. It's important to note that when we read the phrase, God showed Moses, that it isn't just like, oh, oh, this tree over here, you wanted me to? No, it's not like that. What we're actually reading here is that God instructs Moses. God is giving Moses his very word. In fact, it's the same word used for Torah is used here to say God showed. So it's almost like what we're reading here is that God Torahed Moses. He began to unleash in his people, to set before his people his very word, to say, this is how my reign and my rule works. You've experienced this over here. Now let me show you how I rule. God is giving Moses his word as the very salve that would heal their lives. To know God and to be restored by him is to know and trust his word, is it not? And God gives that to the people as a promise to them. He says, just as you have seen this tree bring healing to these waters, so my very word will bring healing to the deepest part of your lives. But our flesh battles against the word. Mara left to fester in the shadows and not addressed by the truth produces hard-heartedness and a stiff-necked people. It's the exact picture we see of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we see what God does with that. Raining down diseases and death upon them. God's instruction to his people to listen to him, to follow him, and follow what he says. To humble themselves under his almighty hand and his outstretched arm. Is his loving and his compassionate and gracious extension of himself to heal their lives. He says, I give you myself in my word in exchange. I want you to give me your lives and your obedience. And the result of that is a healing relationship that we will enjoy together. It's just like this in marriage, right? Where a mutual affection towards one another isn't just spoken, but it's actually reflected in the way that we offer ourselves to one another. God is showing his people that to trust him, to offer their lives to him is truly sweet. But this challenges the paradigm that the people of Israel have come to learn. Egypt deceives us into thinking that obedience to God is bitter. Deceives us into thinking that anything that we obey is bitter. Deceives us into thinking that we shouldn't obey anything except for what we want. It's the same conflict that Adam and Eve came face to face in the garden with when they were deceived by Satan into believing that the fruit of disobedience and independence from God would actually grant them sweetness. 
And it's the same conflict that we face as well, isn't it? Left to ourselves, obedience is difficult because sin has confused our taste just as it has done for the Egyptian or for the Israelites in Egypt. It's confused us into thinking that what is actually bitter is sweet. And what is actually sweet is bitter. It's confused us into thinking that self-preservation, self-gratification, self-rule is better than humility and sacrifice and submission. It deceives us into thinking that God's commands can't possibly be born out of love. But God, in his great mission to restore his people, not only his people, but to restore the world, to right wrongs, to free slaves, and to marry his people, gives his word as a sign of his love for Israel. It's his promise to them that trusting his authority and rule means something so very different than what they tasted in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh. That instead of slavish mandates that cry out for the unquenchable command to produce more bricks without straw, to feel the, the knotted whip wounds of, on our bare backs, that it's a guarantee instead of freedom. It's a balm for those whip wounds. And it's a taste that when it's placed on our tongue is sweeter than honey from the comb. God shows Moses a tree. And in doing so, he exhorts his people to no longer look to what is behind them, to the oppressive land and to the enticements that existed there, but to look ahead of them and to what's to come. It's why the wilderness matters. God intends to lead them through the wilderness so that they might see that their great need and fulfillment is in him and him alone. He wishes to make her a people rid of the stains and the abuse of Egypt if only they will submit to him and trust him. But unfortunately, the people of Israel never seem to be able to bring themselves to fully and consistently obey and heed God's word. And I think if you know this story, you remember, if you look, if you look further into the Exodus narrative, you see how the people, because of their disobedience, are riddled with diseases and death and discouragement. Not on account of God, but on account of their bitterness. If we read through all of this, we see that they had never completely submitted themselves to God. But let's be careful, shall we, not to throw the Israelites under the bus. I remember growing up as a kid reading these stories. These stupid people. Why can't they figure it out? Red Sea. I mean, right there. Let's not do that, right? Because that's us. It's the same for us. If the tree that is offered is ignored, it is the exact same for us. If we choose to live out of our own strength and will, this is absolutely the same. Because we're just as weak. And we could never obey God 100% of the time. And so we return to the tree. 
The tree that marked the giving of God's true and faithful word, an extension of himself to his people, because this is where the good news is. The story doesn't end at Israel's failure. Neither does it end at our failures. The tree still remains. God's commitment to extend himself to his people in love would be fully realized when one day he would extend himself to his people through his word once again. But this time he would extend himself in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God's word made flesh. You see, Jesus coming to earth in the form of a man proclaims God's continued commitment to his people despite their failures. God's longing to heal his people never ceases and his instruction of obedience has never changed. But we're too tied to Egypt, aren't we? That alone makes us incapable of obedience that merits healing. But God, who is rich in love and mercy, sends himself in Jesus as a new Israel to embody humble submission and obedience for us. The obedience required to merit God's healing is fulfilled in Jesus. The story that has been written and left incomplete by the people of Israel has been rewritten and perfected in Jesus. In Matthew 2.15, it says that God calls his son out of Egypt. In Matthew 4, we see that Jesus is called by the Spirit out into the wilderness to endure temptation and testing. And what do we see? He is victorious over each and every one. You see, it's the retelling of the same story, except it's very different. Because you see, where Israel and we all have failed, Christ has prevailed. Because you see, the beauty of this new and complete story is that now the instruction that was meant for us, that was given to the Israelites at Marah, points not to what you or I must do, but it points to what has already been done for us. And so the beautiful thing is that we can return back to this text and we can read verse 26 in such a different way. We can read instead that Christ is the one who listened carefully to the voice of the Lord. He is the one who does what is right in God's sight. He pays close attention to his Father's commands. And he kept every single one of God's decrees. Folks, it is only because of Jesus that we are recipients of God's healing work. Jesus Christ is the faithful one. He is the faithful one that we sung about at the very beginning here this morning who acts on our behalf. He is the one who through his committed obedience to the Father brings healing to us. And I love it because we have Moses as a beautiful representative of a priest here for us in this passage. He's priesting on behalf of them. But Jesus, where Moses asks God, what are you going to do? Jesus priests on our behalf, but actually getting into the waters of Mara. He gets into the bitterness, into the bitter experiences that we, that we have today. Not only that, but he drinks those bitter waters at Mara on the tree. The tree at Calvary 
that God shows the world was soaked in our bitterness and our sin. You see, on the cross, Jesus was diseased with all the diseases that we deserved, and we were granted the life that he lived. And it is only the cross and the work of Jesus that changes our hearts of stone to flesh and makes the bitter experiences that we encounter on a, on a daily basis sweet. And we face them, don't we? The people of Israel didn't stay on the banks of the Red Sea, nor did they just rush to the Promised Land. No, God led them through the desert. And they walked. Really, they struggled, right? Because the wilderness is brutal. And yeah, it's brutal because it's hot. It's brutal because it's long. It's brutal because you get sand everywhere. But it's brutal for a different reason. It's brutal because it points us face to face with how we will walk out this life of worship. And I say that because it is the place where we have tasted what, we have come, what, what is to come, but it is not yet fully realized. It is an already not yet experience that we all walk through day after day after day. We have the hope of what's to come. The Israelites had the hope of what's to come in the promised land. They had seen God's work of salvation, but they had not yet arrived at what is to come. That is us, is it not? When I think about God leading his people out into the desert so that they may worship him, you have to ask that question, well, weren't they doing that at the Red Sea? But I think there's something that we have to be really, really clear about, is that God, yes, he is our savior. He is our rescuer. And he wants us to worship him as that. But he wants more. He wants us to worship him as our king. He wants us to forsake the king that we served for so long in Egypt and fix our eyes on him and say, look at what you've done. See, if we're all honest, we've all probably had moments where we wished we could just stay in the place of euphoric celebration of redemption and salvation. That place where the goodness and power of God are seen right before our eyes just as the Israelites did when they saw the Egyptian army just wash up on shore. Those mountaintop experiences where we experience true victory. It's right there in front of our eyes, in plain view. We'd all love to live in those moments of praise and celebration all of the time. Would we not? But that's not real life. Life is lived in the wilderness. And that's because the wilderness is where God takes his people to humble them, to teach them, to refine, and then to restore them. And he does this so that we will live to worship him. Because we were created to worship. We as humans, we will always find ourselves given over to worship and service to something or someone. And it's in the wilderness where God shows himself and his ways and his character. And it's in the wilderness where God calls his people 
to serve and worship him. It's in the wilderness where he shows his people what it means to serve him. And because he has redeemed us, because he loves us, he shows us that we no longer serve as slaves to a slave driver in Egypt. But we serve as sons and daughters of a good father. But after all of these years of bowing to a slave driver, serving as a slave, how do you just get here? It's different. And what he's showing his people through this work of Mara is that you need to learn it. You don't just begin to walk in a new way. He wants to teach us his love. He wants to teach us his fathering ways. He wants to show us that he is very different than the rulers and authorities of this world. I'm a father of three. With four, they just keep coming. Um, With a fourth on the way. Um, And over the last five years, this experience of being a dad has completely changed the way that I understand and see the way that the Father God loves us and cares for us and moves towards us. As a father, the reality is is that I will do anything for my kids. When my children are filled with joy, I'm filled with joy. When my kids hurt, it breaks my heart. My son, who's the oldest, is five, and, and Simeon had recently an experience where he kind of felt the sting of rejection from one of his cousins. And uh, you see just, just the, the, the dejected nature on his face. Me as the dad wanted to, you know. All is good in the family. All is good in the family. But as parents, right, we want our kids to know that we joy and we delight in them just because. That the way that we parent them isn't going to be with this strong fisted rod that says, do as I say. We're going to lead them into behavior that way. But what happens when our kids sin? I know, I know. It's shocking, right? Yeah. My kids sin. This is just as shocking for me, right? I was kind of hoping that that depravity would come in place a little bit later in life and we didn't have to deal with that so early on. But, you know, in fact, we do have a three-nager at home. Um, Think about that. (laughs) But what happens when our kids sin? What happens when they disappoint us? When they disobey us? What happens when they have poor attitudes? Or what happens when, when she goes off 
she hauls off and slaps her brother right across, across the face for no reason. What do you do? You address it. You don't ignore it. You don't just hope it goes away and that she'll change or he'll change or, you know, everything's going to be good. You step into that. And you bring your instructions as you step into that. And you bring it to light, not because you wish them harm or you want, to, you want them to experience a shame that comes with that. You bring it to light because you love them. You instruct them and call for their obedience as children because you know that the blessing, that, that the blessing awaits them if they do obey but you also know that the, of the harm that they will experience if they don't. The same is true here for the Israelites and for us. We need to learn that simply because God has set us free from bondage to sin, that he's not giving us license to now do whatever we want. God knows that that would lead us right back to that place where we came from. He has something better for us. In saving us, God has begun to reorder things for us, to make us new. And part of that renewing is, is to first purge from us what doesn't reflect that of one of his children. And the thing about a father's love is that he will use whatever is necessary in order for that to happen even if it means momentary pain. Even if it means causing their child discomfort because there's something bigger there. There's something that that child might not see yet. And obedience can be difficult, right? Acknowledging our need and submitting to his instructions, having to come face to face with the sin that still is in our lives, can not only seem bitter at times, but it collides with our desire for self-sufficiency. But when we trust in time, we begin to taste the sweetness of a transformed and a renewed heart and mind. We have a one-year-old. Yes, we have a one-year-old, and then my wife is pregnant. Figure that one out. How? We have a one-year-old, and... Uh, there's always this fun thing that happens when they turn one is that they can start to eat sugar, right? You know, you can start to introduce them to sugar. People are like, bad, bad parenting. No, we give our kids sugar. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Whatever keeps the family happy, right? Um, but, but recently we gave, we gave Flora a, her first taste of ice cream. And that's just a fun experience altogether because it just gets everywhere. Um, but also because what happens when you give your one-year-old ice cream for the first time? What happens? <laughs> right? Right? Am I right? So in that same way, that, I mean, giving your one-year-old ice cream at first is like, what is this? Like, the burn that comes from something so cold that they've never tasted before, it hurts. 
But all of a sudden, slowly, as that burn starts to cool and become just kind of sugar <laughs> with no burn, like, ah, oh, I could get used to this. I could get used to this. In that same way, that's the way that God chooses to reorient, it, reorient our minds and our lives towards him. And so we're brought to Mara so that sin might not prevail. And so that bitterness would not be left to fester. And so that we enjoy a deeper and greater and an increased intimacy with the one who loves us most. But God also brought his people to Mara not simply to show them the bitterness in their hearts, but also in bringing them to the end of themselves to reveal that he would be their only true and eternal source of provision. They were brought to the point of great thirst before he led them to the place where he would show them his might. Sounds awfully familiar to us, doesn't it? It sounds so similar to the trials and the afflictions that we are often asked to endure that can sometimes take us by surprise. Sometimes they seem for no reason at all. And even sometimes because of our obedience. As I've been up here this morning, I look at all of you and I see many of you who are all too familiar with these circumstances. After being here for so long, I have been privileged to, to know and to walk with many of you. But there have been also those agonizing and excruciating moments where we come face to face with the fact that we have yet to figure this thing out. And that God does indeed bring us to those places of affliction. And it stings. There are some of you who, are in, who in submitting yourselves to the call of God, for saying yes to what he's put in front of you, have actually encountered more grief and pain in your lives out of obedience and you think you ever would have had you just said no. There are several of you in this room who are experiencing the evil of cancer wreaking havoc in your body. And you experience it in such a way where every day you wonder if you will experience debilitating pain or the better. Pain that at least allows you to get up and do something today. There are some of you who have longed to be a parent, to have a child. And you've tried every way you know how. And every month, you are met with disappointment and dashed hopes. And there are some in this room who daily endure the gut punch of a spouse or child that has been taken from them. And there are countless other scenarios and situations that you have shared. 
When we come to these times and places where we are parched and thirsty or famished and worn, where our very bodies are wasting away and we are taunted by the voices of fear and anxiety, feel like we're going to be overcome by the grief and the pain of it all. We're just tired, worn out. When we are surprised to come to these places, even when we have followed where he's so clearly told us to go, and where what becomes reality is not at all what we thought would happen when we began this journey in the first place. At these moments of our greatest desperation and our testing, when the answer to our deepest cries of why are not quickly answered, will we shake our fists at him and say, Why? You betrayed me! Better back over there. And we will let bitterness begin to take root. And will our longing and our deception of what is bitter now feel sweet? And may we will we find ourselves back in Egypt? Or in these moments at the water's edge, desperate to have our souls restored, will we be compelled to remember the past deeds of the Lord? Will we be compelled to remember his loving promises? To cry out to God for help as Moses had. And when our cupped hands meet our mouth to drink, Will we behold the tree and upon it the man, Jesus, the Word made flesh, bearing our sorrows, bearing our grief, bearing our sin? There he is. There he is drinking undiluted bitterness for our healing. There he is offering up a life that we may drink sweet the deep waters of his. The waters he offers are living and eternal where when we drink of it we will never thirst again. Where even in our afflictions the fullness of life he gives can't be locked up inside of us any longer. Jesus says if anyone thirsts let him come to me. Let him drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not only have you consumed the water that I offer, but now it flows out of you. You offer it to other people. That even in our affliction, when we drink, it is not just for our own selves, but it's for the washing world. This is real. Kim Cronline sat in here at first service. I don't know if you remember, but Kim lost her husband, Tom, suddenly this spring. And Kim and I talked on the phone a couple times before we actually got together face-to-face -face for the first time, and it was stunning. It was incredibly humbling to walk into that room and to see Kim, who had just lost her husband, with three-by-five cards in her, in her hands, with the word, with the water, of life 
written all over them to remind her, to remind her what he has done and to remind, him what he, what, remind her what he's going to do and to remind her that in, in the moment of her affliction where she doesn't even see two steps in front of her, that he is there. That is real. Think of Phil Warner's. Phil's a, an incredible guy in this family. And Phil recently went through a season of, of really harsh cancer. It ravaged his body. And I remember walking in, into his hospital room after he had had his bone marrow transplant. He had just had such a rough night the night before where they weren't even sure if he would make it through the night. And I remember sitting there with him. And, you know, I don't know bone marrow transplants, so forgive me for those of you who are doctors in this room, but usually, as I understand, you want your white blood level to be at about a 7 or 8 after a, after a bone marrow transplant. His was 0 0.05. He had zero immune system. Nothing was keeping him from getting sick. And I remember sitting there with Phil and, and, and sitting with him and kind of going, what do you say in these sorts of situations? How do you even begin to enter into that with somebody? And I love that God forgives us even when we make mixed steps and our, and our voices just say things that we go, oh, that was stupid. I said, how are you? <laughs> right? I know. And he began to cry. And the tears came, and he began to weep. And I thought, this makes sense. This is so understandable. You are so okay weeping about this situation. And you know what he said to me? He says, he's been so good to me. I don't want to waste this. This is a man who has been brought to the bitter waters of Mara and to walk through such deep and intense circumstances in such a way and yet to be able to go and journey and be brought to worship. That's what he's doing. That only comes by taking hold of the healing waters that Jesus offers us. This is, the, is, this is the way that in the face of such trial, we will not be sucked back into bitterness, but are able to take Jesus at his word when he says, in this world, you will have troubles. Fear not! I have overcome them. It is finished. I've already done it. Will you trust me? And so our hearts can resound with the Apostle Paul when he says that outward we are, that therefore we do not lose hope. For outwardly, yes, our bodies are wasting away. But inwardly, we are being renewed as we take in the life-giving sweet waters of Jesus.
He is renewing us day after day after day. For these afflictions that we experience, yes, they're difficult. They're hard. They press against our human selves, but they are momentary. In light of the eternal glory that we will once and for all experience and know in the presence of Jesus. And it should give us great hope in this passage that it doesn't end at Mara. No, God brings his people to Elam. And that is what our hope is. is a place where, we are, where our needs are met and are met abundantly. That isn't for us to, dis- to discern and to know how he will meet those needs. But we can take him at his word that indeed he will meet those needs. And so today, for you... Perhaps you have found yourself at the, at the water's edge. Perhaps you are experiencing and walking through a Mara-type experience today. What is the condition that flows out of your heart? When met by Mara, what comes out of you? Is it bitterness? Is it the thought that I deserve better than this? Is it the thought that I don't want to do this anymore? Or even in that, is what flows out of our hearts a worship of awe, of wonder, of submission, saying, God, I don't know. I don't know how you're going to do this. But today, trust you. Tomorrow, I don't know how you're going to do this, but today I trust you. We need each other, guys. People of Israel weren't led there as individuals. They were led there collectively. And so in the same way, collectively, we enter in that same place. We're going to take a couple minutes of silence. Just allow you to reflect. Just ask yourself that question. As Jesus was beginning and preparing to die, the night before his crucifixion, he went with his disciples out into the garden of Gethsemane. And there we see him praying to his father and saying, if you are willing, take this cup, this bitter cup from me. And yet in the same breath, he also says, Yet, Father, not my will, but yours. Today we have the communion table set for you. Because in his goodness, Jesus Christ faithfully obeyed the Father, even unto death, taking the bitter cup that was ours to drink and exchanging it for a cup that is now sweet. And so today, as you approach the tables, as you come to eat and to drink, may you remember that it is Jesus who has made your life sweet, even in the midst of affliction. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, worship him until he comes. Come and eat. If you'd like someone to pray with you this morning, uh, we will have some elders up front here afterwards who would love to pray with you. I would love to make some time if that is something that you need. We receive this blessing this morning. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd who bears the wounds, the scars of affliction on his hands, his feet, his head, his side. May that great shepherd of the sheep equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.